Father, speak to us now as we read these profound words from, from John's Gospel and from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Um, as you touched lives in the first century, touch our lives now, for Christ's sake. Amen. Our first reading tonight is from John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my, into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with, with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what we be you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. The topic of today's sermon could not be more important. 
may start on a personal note, it's of immense importance to me. It's why I'm here. I don't mean here preaching this sermon in the series. I mean in church at all and where I gave my adult life to the ordained ministry. It's of immense importance to you also, whether you're a Christian believer or not, it's of immense importance to our world, if the truth be known. What is this immensely important topic? It is the question of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. The question of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. You'll see in the, in the handout, my sermon has three points. It's of immense importance. It's a very big claim and uh, it, is it true? And, you, and you, that may guide you. Let me begin, it's of immense importance. The claim that God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead is immensely important because it's at the heart of all that the New Testament has to say to us. It is at the heart of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as our sermon series beginning today will show us in the coming weeks, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead has profound implications, as we'll find out next Sunday when I join you again, on who is Jesus for today. Then profound implications for our salvation, profound implications for our present life, profound implications for our future, and profound implications for the future of the universe. Take the resurrection of Jesus out, and the whole edifice of the Christian faith collapses. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul asks his readers to imagine for a moment what it would be like if the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead didn't happen. Let me read a couple of sentences. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. That's how absolutely central the resurrection of Jesus is. It's at the heart of the gospel. I said, let me give two simple examples of that. 2 Timothy 2.8. 2 Timothy 2.8. This is Paul writing. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead a descendant of David, that is my gospel. Can't be simpler than that. Remember Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, raised from the dead, a descendant of David, that is my gospel. Or slightly richer way of formulating it, the opening words of the, gospel, of the letter to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel concerning God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul can even say that saving faith is faith in the resurrection. In Romans 10 verse nine he writes, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Simple as that. And when you look at the, every gospel proclamation in the book of Acts, and I want to come to that next week with you, some of them, not all of them, you'll find that every single one of them is uniformly focused on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's how immensely significant the resurrection of the Jesus from the dead is. Second point, it's a very big claim. It's truth or otherwise may be of immense significance, but it's also an astounding claim that's being made, a very big claim. When the early Christians claimed that God had raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, what they meant was that his, he had really been dead and he was raised to life really in his body. Recent research has shown that for first century Jews, resurrect, resurrection meant bodily resurrection, nothing else. So when the early Christians claimed that Jesus had been risen from the dead, they were not saying his spirit lives on. They were not saying he'd gone to God. They were saying that he once dead was alive, his body and he had been raised. If I can draw these two lines in the air like this to represent death, they were not saying he died and was now up with God. They were not even saying, as with someone like a Lazarus, he died and then was brought back into the world of mortality. They were saying that he died and then been raised on the other side, transformed. As Paul writes in Romans 6 verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Another interesting point. The, the English translations of the New Testament hide, often hide from us, it's not their fault, it's a trouble with English language, that when the New Testament speak, writes about Jesus being raised from the dead, the word the dead is often plural, most often plural. That is, he is raised from the dead ones or from among the dead ones. The dead, not as an abstract phrase, but a concrete thinking of those who are dead. He was among the dead ones, and now he's been raised from among the dead ones. That's resurrection. Now, it's a claim so very big that, that, unfortunately, you'll find often even Christians attempting to calm it down, flatten it out, to mean something else, so it's easier to believe. Like Serene Jones, president of the Union Theological Seminary, who once stated in a New York Times interview that the resurrection of Jesus actually meant, quote, the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. Well, that, that may be, but that's not resurrection from the dead. Nor does it mean, as I heard in the liturgy of the Scottish Episcopal Church, I went to church to a Holy Communion service in, back in 2019, and as they were recounting the great acts of God, I, we had this sentence describing the resurrection, I imagine. From the garden, the mystery dawned that he whom they had loved and lost is now with us in every place forever. Well, that may be what happened, but it's not the resurrection of the dead. It wasn't a dawning of a mystery. It was a reality in the world. The resurrection is something more radical and literally more incredible. The reason for the somewhat mealy-mouthed watering down, to mix my metaphors, of the meaning of the resurrection in the liturgy of the Scottish Episcopalian Church or the opinions of the president of the Union Theological Seminary is that the claim is such a big claim, 
such a hard to believe claim. For a start, it's an event which on any terms is scientifically not possible. From all we know about how the world works, the dead are irreversibly dead. That's what dead means. Though that of course is the point. The proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is exactly the proclamation that something has happened without parallel in the universe. Beyond human and scientific possibility. And this has always been the case in the central Christian claim. For while today we know much more science about the world than the first Christians did, they knew what dead meant. Yes, it's a very big claim. Which comes to my third question. Is the claim true? How can we know if it's true? Now, to get this question even started, we must deal with a very with a significant challenge, that the challenge of allowing the possibility of a genuine resurrection from the dead at all. I've already said that scientifically speaking, it's not possible. For it to happen, there must be a cause from outside the natural order of reality. But if you are convinced that the natural world, you know, space, time and all the stuff, is, is all there is, and you're sure that's right, then no matter how compelling evidence you may come across that Jesus may have been raised from the dead or the dead ones, you won't accept it. You may have to say you've no idea what took place. Whatever it is, you know it could not have been a genuine resurrection from the dead. Why? Because you already know that's not possible. Of course, good evidence of the resurrection of the dead in Jesus may itself be evidence that the natural world is not all that is and challenge that presupposition. On the other hand, as Justin pointed out just last Sunday, if you allow the possibility that God is real, then that opens the door to the possibility of the resurrection immediately. That's the first challenge. The second cha challenge, as well as that, I call that the possibility challenge, there's the historical distance challenge. From where, how far we are tonight away from the events that supposedly took place. It's now nearly 2,000 years and counting. We might say it's all very well for those who were there. <coughs> they had the advantage of being on the spot, as it were. We're a long way away in Australia's case, in both distance and especially time. Now, I want to deal with this challenge by taking you to John 20, which we heard in the first reading, <coughs> page 880. And the matter of Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, often called Doubting Thomas because of this, story, of this particular account you just heard. As you heard, when the risen Jesus first appeared to his fearful disciples, Thomas was unfortunately absent. Now, I don't know what he was doing that night, but I hope it was something pretty important, <laughs> something worth it. But he wasn't there anyway. When the disciples told him they'd seen the Lord, he refused to believe it, saying unless he himself saw it, in fact, touched Jesus to prove it, he wouldn't believe. A week later, in fact, tonight, if you follow it, last, night being, last Sunday being Easter, this, this evening, as it were, 
They were alone together in the same room. This time Thomas was with them. I bet he never left their side the whole week. Through the, though the doors were locked, Jesus appeared among them as he had the, the week before. And turned to Thomas, addressing, challenging him, you might say. Put your fingers here, he said. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. What Thomas does next is a surprise. Without touching Jesus' wounds, as he said he would, he addresses Jesus in more exalted terms than any other person in the entire Gospel of John, more exalted even than John the Baptizer. He says of Jesus, my Lord and my God. This is an example of what New Testament scholar Richard Balcom calls, quote, the highest possible Christology, the inclusion of Jesus in the identity of God, the highest possible Christology, the inclusion of Jesus in the identity of God. And Balcom shows that this, the decisive step of including Jesus in the identity of God predates any New Testament writing. In other words, they believed that before any book or letter of the New Testament was written and was made at the beginning, as we see here. We'll be looking further next week at what the resurrection meant for Jesus. But today I want to focus upon what Jesus said next in John 20, 29. And I think this sentence, unlike the NIV, should be read as a question, as a kind of Jewish question. Because you've seen me, you've come to believe? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet come to believe. I think that's the way it should be read. Because you've not seen me, you believe? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Annoyingly, there are two different Greek words that mean quite different things, but are both translated in English as blessed or blessed. The word for blessed here is not the one that means blessed by God. Eulegetos which means be well spoken of. But the other word that means to be happy or flourishing or lucky, or well done, makarioi, one that one English scholar noted is approximate to the Australian English expression, good on ya. By the way, that's the words used in what we call the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Good on you, how meek. Good on you, how poor. Because you've seen me, you believed? Good on those who have not seen and yet believed. But how and why? How can someone not see and yet come to believe? How could Thomas? Is Jesus calling here for blind faith? Is that where we're left? Not quite, think about it. There is a way that Thomas could have not seen and yet believed. He could have not seen and yet believed by trusting the testimony of the other disciples who'd seen. They'd seen and told him, we've seen the Lord. He refused to believe them. And yet Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen yet come to believe. And then something quite significant happens in the text. I'm looking at verse 30 and 31. Suddenly in the story, we're not told by the way, nothing what happened next. 
did, did people respond? What happened? The story's cut off with Jesus' kind of punchline. And into the story steps the author or authors. We don't know whether there's one or two or number. In steps the authors and give us a note. They talk to us, the reader. Here's what they say. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The last sentence is the important one. These, that is, these signs, signs is the language used in John's Gospel, what we would call wonders, including, of course, the resurrection, that he performed in the presence of his disciples are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The authors of this gospel are doing for us what they did to Thomas. They're testifying of what we have not seen. The difference between us and Thomas is we can't wait a week and then check it out ourselves and see. We're too far away from that for that. Testimony is when someone sees or experiences something and then tells others who, because they trust the witnesses, come to know what the witnesses saw as well for themselves. So here, the disciples saw and experienced much of Jesus. They tell us, and thank God it was by writing down, so that nearly 2,000 years later, we who have not seen can yet come to believe by trusting their testimony. And through that, have life in the name of Jesus. This is not all just about facts, it's about life in the end. I think that's how we overcome the challenge of the historic distance. Now we could just leave it there, but I want to take it one step further because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead ones is a very big claim and we would do well to reflect further whether we should accept their testimony. The question I want to put is this, what best accounts for that testimony that Jesus was raised from the dead. Is it trustworthy or not to be trusted? Let me briefly tell you how I approach this. It's in two steps. Step one, I think there are very good reasons to treat at least two historical facts or historical realities as effectively historical facts. There are two things we can start with. One is that the Jesus' tomb was empty. The other is that people had some kind of experience of seeing Jesus alive. In themselves, they don't prove the resurrection, but I think they are a good starting point. There are good reasons to treat Jesus' tomb as empty in historical fact. I'll give you two. One is that remarkably, all the Gospels report that the empty tomb was discovered by women. You say, big deal. Ah. Listen to what first century Jewish historian Josephus tells us about Jewish law at the time. And I wish to apologize for any offense that I'm about to give by quoting Josephus. This is, this, is what the, this is what Josephus tells us Jewish law was at the time, right? I quote, let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Too much levity and boldness appears to trust them in, in a court. <laughs> now, Right, so you would not report that the tomb had been discovered by women, except if it was, otherwise you're shooting yourself in the foot. Simple as that. 
That's a very strong evidence, I think, that something viridial is going on here. The, the other is this. Early Christians could not have successfully proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus if his body still lay in the tomb. Back in those days, and not everyone knows this, I think, there was a system of double burial. First, a body was wrapped up and placed on a niche or a bench in a tomb. By the way, most tombs were meant to be used by many. And we were told by the New Testament that Jesus was a new tomb. He was the only one at the time. But in practice, you could put a number in. That's partly why you put all the spices and ornaments to try and avoid the awful smell when you go in again. That's the primary burial, right? Then a year, nine months later, whatever it was, you go back, the flesh is decayed, so you gather the bones from the niche and you put them in a box, a limestone box called an ossuary, where the body is then, the remains are then kept. That's the second burial. In fact, we found, archaeologists have found a number of ossuaries in digging up at Jerusalem. Now, that's what Joseph of Arimathea planned to do with Jesus' corpse in due time. But, but the moment Jesus' rotting remains were discovered, the claim of resurrection, together with the entire Christian movement, collapses. It didn't happen. It didn't happen because there was no body in the tomb. I think the empty tomb does stand as just as solid you can think about these things as historically sound. Now the other piece of solid fact I think is that people had experiences of seeing Jesus alive. That's not proving it, we're saying they had experiences of it. The reason we can be sure of that fact is that not just the gospel accounts but pieces like you just heard read in the second reading. Opening passage in 1 Corinthians 15 which Paul is reminding his Corinthian readers, not something new. He's not saying, I'm telling you this now. He's reminding them what he told them before. He has to remind them because the Corinthians were a particularly ratty church and they've gone off the rails yet again. He's reminding them. Now, he would have reminded them sometime in the year, using our form of counting, about the year 50 to 55. That's 20 years after the events purportedly had taken place. But he, he said he received them. And if you receive them on his visit to Jerusalem, that's, that's bringing you out within one or two years of the reported events. And what are these events? Well, listen to this. Firstly, he describes, as it were, the, the heart of the gospel. For I receive what I passed on to you. Of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. By the way, that you'll find in the Nicene Creed. Still, it's the very core of our, the, the longer of our two creeds, that little piece from Paul. But then comes the interesting bit, verse 5. And that he appeared to Kephas. That's Peter's um, Aramaic name for, for Rocky. Then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then Paul adds a bit about himself. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Paul is aware that he, his appearance of the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus is out of sequence with all the others. That's the point he's making. 
And that's very, very interesting because these, um, a lot of these we have no other evidence for. This, this is all news to us. For example, appeared to Kephas. This presumably is on the day of resurrection before he appears to the twelve. We have no record of that except when the, the, two, the two people who are on the road to Emmaus walk with Jesus, discover he's, he's alive, rush back to Jerusalem with, with, with red-hot news. They get there and say, but he is risen. Oh, no, we, we know, they, they, the others say, we know he's appeared to see Peter, <laughs> Simon. So somewhere he's appeared to Simon. The one I find also fascinating is to James, who is Jesus' brother. If you know the Gospels, he was pretty cool on Jesus at the time. But here he is, appeared to James. And he turns up very quickly in the New Testament, in the Acts of the Apostles, very quickly, the leader of the Jerusalem church, especially once Peter has to flee. You'd love to know what was that. But for the 500 at the one time, many of him are alive. So they, there's a stack of people out there. Well, it's a remarkable list, I think. Something is going on. I think if we can take a sound, whatever you want to believe about it, there is very strong evidence that many people had I've seen Jesus alive experiences. Now, part two, the second step. Here's the question. What is the best explanation we can give of these two, not just one and one, but two solid historical facts together? By themselves, each one, maybe you could dismiss that one as hallucinations. This one is, I don't know, something went wrong here, but, but two together. The empty tune and the experiences of the reason Jesus. What best explains them? Now, of course, it is possible to make up any number of crazy theories, any number, especially if you want to completely resist where this is taking you. But for me, the most compelling answer is the one given within the New Testament itself. The best and most compelling explanation for the body of Jesus not being in the tomb and the numerous reports of meeting the resurrected Jesus is what the disciples themselves said had happened. In the words of Peter's reported speech, just a month after the death of Jesus, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. That is the best explanation, that it is true. We have reason to accept the testimony. Although we have not seen, we do believe and have life in his name. Although I, I, want to, I don't want to suggest this is all simply about reason and evidence, as important as, that is, important as that is. God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, opens eyes and turns hearts. He's also involved in, the, in, in these matters. You may remember at the beginning of this sermon, I said that the truth of the resurrection of Jesus is of immense importance to me personally. And it's why I'm here. It's why I'm a Christian and why I've given my adult life to the ordained ministry. It's why I'm preaching this sermon, you might say. Although I grew up in an active, with an active Christian background, when I approach young adulthood, I put the whole of my Christian faith up for review, as I think you probably ought to, actually. Was I believing all this stuff just because I'd been brought up that way? I, tossed, I remember tossing the issue round and round. Eventually, I came up against the rock of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and its truth. The Christian faith was true, 
In fact, it was truer than I'd thought, as it were. And that's why, with all the naivety of an 18-year-old, I set my course to the ordained ministry, knowing almost nothing about myself or the church I'd set myself to serve, which may, in fact, it may have been just as well. Now, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus may not propel you into the ordained ministry, though for some, let me say, I think it should. For some, I think it should. But whatever it does, it cannot but change you profoundly. It cannot but affect your life profoundly. It is of immense importance. It is a very big claim, 